You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Digital Noise. Joining me this week for the reviews of all the Blu-rays and DVDs that have come out recently, or at least up to where we're caught up with watching, is Aaron. This week I will be going as Wheezy. Yeah, I know that your your uh, your voice issues there. You yes, kinda... yes. This happens to me every year. I spend like three weeks like this where I feel fine. Yeah, I'm not fatigued or anything. Yeah. I just sound like Wheezy from the Jeffersons. Uh, that's why you didn't come to the gathering? That is why I didn't. Thing. You yeah, missed a good one, too. I... I I was coughing so much at that time. I was like, you know, I could come, but then I'd be that guy where they're like, why is there somebody just coughing behind <laughs> everyone the entire time? Well, um, that certainly has happened before. It was, it was the biggest one we had yet, which is, of course, if you guys out there don't know, The Gathering is our bi-weekly party podcast, and the way you get to listen to that amongst a bunch of other stuff is if you become a subscriber to oneofus.net. There's four different levels, all with its own benefits. If you want to hear The Gathering specifically, that's at our $5 brown coat level, you know, brown coats like in Firefly. And Ha- having gone to the first two, I'm, I keep being sad because I'm I'm always in town for one week and then out of town for a week, and the cadence of me out of town and the gathering has flipped, so I'm always out of town then instead of the other way around. But uh, we get to talk about like weird, batshit, insane stories of our youth. There was a discussion about the best porn that was out there and the best kind of barbecue to eat. You can hear us all get burnt out of our minds because we tried spicy hot sauce. Yeah, it's uh, divine. You you literally never know what to expect on that show. Sometimes we'll be getting into deep deep cuts into current movies or TV shows or video games, and other times we're just talking about weird sex shit we did. Yeah, I'm I'm legitimately upset that I've missed it as many times as I can. It's one of those that I keep wanting to do. Uh, But yeah, if you want to feel like you're there... Just become a $5 a month subscriber. That's not much. And it is you guys, it is the subscribers that is really like 99% the reason why we're even able to do this site at all. Without you guys, there is no site. You are the site's source of income. And this site takes a lot of work to do, believe me. Because we're not just, hey, let's just go podcast. Oh, yeah, we've also got to watch 18 movies in the next three days. That kind of thing. So all that being said... That's not the only thing that helps us out here. We've also got a beer sponsor, Oscar Blues Brewing Company. Now, in Austin, they're located at 10420 Metric Boulevard. They also have a location in Denver that you can check out. But the brew pub here is really quite amazing. There's a huge amount of uh, beers that they make there, including seasonals. They also make, like, rubs for barbecue, and they make bikes. Isn't that weird? That's three things. That's an odd combination, although that... That sounds like an awesome company too. It's well, they're not. They actually are yeah. from uh, from I believe Colorado originally, yeah. but um, but they're firmly settling in as an Austin company these days. I mean, with like I said, they're on very ostentatious brew pub. You guys probably know them best from Dale's Pale Ale because that was the first craft beer ever put in a can. Honestly, I drank way too much of it last night, and I'll tell you, <laughs> I woke up with almost no hangover. 
That's oh, the magic. That's just not fair. That's the magic of Dale's Pale Ale. I'm just saying. Anyway, without any further ado, it is time for us to go on to the reviews. And we're going to start off with one of uh, the new, uh, not the newest, because the newest has already come out. We haven't got a chance to review it yet. But the previous newest DC <laughs> Universe animated film that some, some are actually calling one of the best ones they've ever put out, which is Suicide Squad Hell to Pay. Now, let me be clear. This is most definitely considered like an Elseworlds, like a what-if sort of storyline, because pretty much everybody in this thing except maybe three characters die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, spoiler, but that's because it's a, it's supposed to be like, like a it's like if gr that movie Grindhouse had had a third part that was an animated superhero story, that's what this would be. And that's when I started to really enjoy it, because in the beginning, it was so violent that it kind of took me aback a little bit. And then when they went to the credit sequence, the opening credit sequence is like, oh, this should have been the third part of Red Grindhouse. It's the exact same thing. Even the soundtrack is basically a retooled version of the Planet Terror soundtrack. Well, and the one thing that's cool, though, is that while they did that aesthetic of the burned film and damage yeah. print, they only did that for the credit sequence. Yeah. that stuff annoys the crap It would have gotten annoying for the entire movie, but yeah. Sorry, continue, because no, no, no. I, I wanted to get into the character, because one thing that I really liked is, so, this is the Suicide Squad, and you have the standard holdovers. Harley Quinn is in there, Deadshot is in there, but except for that, almost all of the superhero characters, or super characters in there, super villains, were yeah. ones that I hadn't really heard of. Oh. And they even go so far as to making a character named Bronze Tiger, yeah. who has to be a Z-list. Like, how can he not be... Into a badass character who I really got into. Let's say I really liked all of the Suicide Squad in here, and not for the mistaken reasons that they did in the live-action movie of trying to make them into thoroughly sympathetic characters. That's not what they're doing here, because they're exactly. not. They're villains. They, they really are, are. Bad. But they're badasses. <laughs> and because the fact that they're doing it like a grindhouse type of movie, and that there is sort of no rules really here... It was easier to kind of appreciate on that level. Yeah. You know, it felt like you're watching an old ex exploitation film in the style of it. The, the only thing that got to me, and this is not the fault of the movie, is uh, Vandal Savage. Mm -hmm. He comes into play during this movie, which, minor spoiler, and also I discovered that he apparently has a daughter in the comics. Yeah. And her character name is Scandal Savage. Who names their daughter Scandal? Which, were you just like, that desperate to find a name that rhymed with Yeah, this? how pretentious are you that all your kids are named with rhyming versions of your name? Like, I was totally into her character and her plot, and she has an interesting relationship with another character who's also fascinating. Yeah. And then the moment they said her name was Scandal Savage, I just rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, God. And this thing, despite even the, the uh, Suicide Squad itself is a who's who of villains in the DC universe, or at least B and below list yeah. villains, with a few A list in here, I would I would like Vandal Savage, um, but the uh, basic idea is, of course, Amanda Waller, uh, voiced here by Vanessa Williams, is forcing a new crew, except for Deadshot, is the one holdover from the previous crew, uh, together with the explosive bombs in their necks to go do a mission. Which, as we find out, it's such a weird mixing of DC stuff here. But I mean, there's no reason it, it nothing in it is like, oh, well, that would not have worked in the DC. No, universe. it's just basically random. there's a card that is a get out of hell free card, and the holder, if they were their souls bound for hell when they die, if they're holding that card, then they automatically get bounced to heaven, regardless of anything they've done. So Amanda Waller, who dis discovers she's dying of a disease, of cancer, I think it was cancer, right? Yeah, it's cancer. Um, uh, is, like, desperate to get this card, because she knows she's going to hell. Which, can I just say that 
that that's such a random weird plot point but at the same time it's perfect because yeah. in all reality no matter who you are if there was an honest to god get out of hell free card what wouldn't you do to have that if you were certain you were going to hell probably almost anything and and as you know this film is filled with villains pretty much everybody would kind of like to get their hands on it so yeah. it's basically villains versus villains in this thing with Professor Zoom, voiced of all people, C. Thomas Howell, uh, who is kind of leading a group of guys who are trying to get it back, including like Copperhead and uh, uh, God, who was the other the other main one in that group? Uh, so I, well, I hold like on, there were t- there were because there's several different yeah, groups. there are like four different groups. Yeah, there's who are one all that's Copperhead, oh, yeah, Killer Cap- Frost, Deadshot, Harley Quinn, and Bronze Tiger. How the hell Captain did I remember Boomerang. all those names? Oh, and Captain Boomerang. And then the other group is yeah. Banshee. Banshee. Silver Banshee, Professor Zoom, and yeah. Blockbuster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's so many weird reveals in here. Like, Dr. Fate has a <laughs> in this, and you're like, oh, what the fuck? It's a very strange mix of like the magic universe like stuff and the, the the you know the villain universe stuff that like I said is there's clear there's no way they want to say oh this happened in in, no, in no. context of anything else because they would lose so many of Although, their villains in the DC so universe it, it it ties into one previous DC property yes and and I don't want to go into why or how because it's really badass but there is a previous DC movie that it flat out kind of makes itself a direct sequel to. Which in and of itself was a alternate reality. Yeah. yeah. And it does it in such a masterful way. It's a twist towards the middle. that I was like, holy shit, that's a legitimately great idea. I, I had a, a really fun time with this, and it did. It took me a little while to get used to the, like, you know, the very adult nature of this. I do feel, it's funny to me and kind of sad that we can show this much violence, and you could tell the guys who made this really wanted to have a proper sex scene in this thing. And nudity. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, could yeah, tell they, they, they did. They, they scooted in like three frames of nudity. Yeah. And, you know, they're like, yeah, yeah we want to do it. So here's a little side There's boob. multiple moments you're like, you know this is where they would have put this and they wouldn't be allowed. Well, if someone's like, well, it's animated film. It's superheroes. You can't do that. It's like, dude, that dude's head exploded. And, can I just call out, too, in, in the interest of equalizing the treatment of genders. This movie does a surprisingly good job <laughs> in that uh, they go to a strip club halfway through the movie, and it's a male strip club. Yeah. It's not a gay strip club. No. It is a male strip club that is played as a male strip club. And it's. I was like, oh, well, that was actually kind of refreshing. And with such a weird storyline going on around it, like the search for this guy, <laughs> a male stripper... It's it's a this is a weird movie, like, uh, but but not in a bad way. In a in a like I said, a way that like feels like an old grindhouse movie, only with DC superheroes. Yeah, in it. Like honestly, my, the only thing that I really got frustrated, aside from Scandal Savage's name, which oh my god, whoever <laughs> came up with that character, great character, come on with a name, yeah. But is that my favorite member of the Suicide Squad, who shall remain nameless, gets killed? And yeah. I was like, oh damn it, I wanted them to live. Well, once again. Almost everyone yeah, almost dies. Almost everyone dies. <laughs> so it, it felt better at that point. Which is point. kind of a reverse spoiler because I'm not even telling you at all who are. The, it's more of a spoiler who lives to yeah, tell you who is. lives than it is to tell you who dies. So, uh, this, of course. Being a DC animated universe film, they try to fill this up with bonus features. I thought this was kind of a very underwhelming set of bonus features here. Very short takes on, like, Captain Boomerang, on, on, uh, um, the, 
Deadshot on just a sort of a, a piece that was like really y'all were desperate on this called the power power of plot devices MacGuffins and red herrings. It's basically explaining to you what that is because somebody felt like they would be well confused by the get out of jail free get out of hell free card. What I always really enjoy about these DC animated universes is they usually put a lot of information on the backstory of the character yeah. and how they were incepted, but. With Suicide Squad, I imagine they kind of, pardon the pun, shot their wad on the original Suicide Squad right. assault on Arkham. And so here, it's the, I'm the same way. A bunch of these were like, okay, yeah. that was an entertaining three minutes. And then there's, you know, obviously, like, looks at some of the uh, the ones that have already come out. Um, and then there is a, they go... Uh, into an old episode of Beware the the Batman in, in Instinct, for 11, which was episode eleven from season one. There's a Young Justice episode Terrors, which is also episode eleven from season one. Strangely enough, uh, and then of course a trailer for Batman Ninja, which will be the next DC animated universe film we'll talk about. Uh, not on this show though. Uh, anyway, yes, highly recommended. I thought this was really good. Uh, definitely one of the DC animated universe films I'm going to revisit. Uh, one, I wasn't able to give you the copy of this one because they only sent me a digital copy, but I assume you went to go see Black Panther in the theater. Right? I went to go see it, and I'll admit I bought it digitally when it came out. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. So I, I, I didn't actually watch it for this during this time period, but I also watched Black Panther while I was reviewing these. Well, it so. uh, came comes out in just a few days, <clears throat> and uh, I got a chance. I mean, obviously, if you want to hear the full review of the movie, we obviously you can just put that in the search bar on one of us, and that review will pop right up. In fact, I think there's multiple places in which it was talked about. Unsurprisingly, because it was a monster hit of 2018 for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if the only thing that beats it is uh, the Avengers. Yeah, you know. Um, anyway, so this Blu-ray has actually filled up with some interesting stuff. Not as much as I'd like. Whatever happened to the one-shot movies, right? Don't you yeah, miss those? Yeah, when they that haven't was a done those since Phase like one. And, and I really enjoyed them. Super short gag reel. Like it's like <laughs> a minute and a half. That's mainly that's like it's like divided up into like three things: people mispronouncing Wakanda, <laughs> really? people props failing miserably. And then people dancing on set and trying to make other people laugh with goofy dancing. And that's pretty much it for like a minute and 20, a minute and 38 seconds. Um, there are a few deleted scenes, one of which was a lot was made of online because it establishes that Okoye and Wakabi were married and which, had, and have, have a child together. See, uh, it's interesting. I didn't know that they had a child because I saw that when it released on YouTube, but Quite frankly, I didn't know that that wasn't obvious. They call each other my desire or my beloved the whole right. movie. But it was never clear they were married. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, that th- their relationship was more than just a relationship. Uh, there's uh, more stuff with um, like uh, T'Challa and his father, sort of like giving us more information about that, including seeing T'Challa as a young man with his father. Um, there's nothing essential there. But what is essential on here is the from page to screen, a roundtable discussion where it gets the uh, writers who've written Black Panther, Christopher Priest, Don McGregor, and Ta-Nehisi Coates, along with the film's producer, Nate Moore, and the co-writers, Joe, Joe Robert Cole and Ryan Coogler, who, of course, also directed it, who talk about the whole history of Black Panther uh, and how, basically, we got here uh, to this point. And it's... It's a really solid discussion. It's one of those. I love when they do that. That's yeah. my favorite type of thing when you get a really educated group of people like that, like on the subject and who sort of have taken place all throughout a character's history to discuss oh, said thing. That's like I mean, on the with Star Trek Next Generation Blu-ray when they had like the, the all the, the captains. Tables. 
together, and you're like, oh my god, it's all the captains together. Oh, well, with, with how. It, with how nuanced the writing was and how good a job they did at the characterization, this is one of those movies where I really do want to hear about the writing of it. I yeah. really do want to hear what they were intending. Because I'll admit I, I love most of the Marvel movies. I think the one I like the least I think is okay. But this was a phenomenal film. Oh, Just yeah. Through and through. Um, and if you'd like to hear more about that, the commentary yeah. uh, by out. Brian Coogler and production designer Hannah Beechler. Uh, there is a, <coughs> excuse me, Marvel Studios, the first 10 years connecting the universe. I think thought that was on Thor Ragnarok as well. I think it might be. It's basically it like been. a just under 10 minute thing that gives you a, a, a crash course in everything that's happened up till now in the Marvel movies. Yeah, which you um, need it now. Yeah, <laughs> we've gotten to that point where we, we really do have to have Ron Howard come on at the end of <laughs> getting a beach one. On the last Marvel Universe film. Got it. <laughs> Thanos, I will destroy you all. He does. <laughs> Uh, there's a uh, also a few of like the sort of you know the more typical very slick EPK-ish type things there's one on Wakanda revealed exploring the technology there's one of the warriors within which explore get a closer look in interviews with each of the, the female characters in this movie there's the hidden kingdom revealed which gets deeply into the cultural aspects of the, the this country and how they designed it it's the crowning of a new king um, which is basically just Trying to say how they Black Panther went from the Captain America movie to this and and that transfer of power. As I, I gotta say, I want to watch the Warriors within because as, as much as this movie ended up being a very cultural touchstone film for the African American community, like I was expecting that. Mm-hmm. What ended up really surprising me about it was how strong all the female characters were. Because mm-hmm. just God damn, I don't think there's a single moment when any of them are ever uh, in dismay or needing help. They're all competent, smart, badass, and charismatic with their own interests. Yeah. Actually, I I was pitching this to my mom and my dad. I was like, yes, you need to watch it for all these reasons, but mom, you need to watch it because the women are badass. Oh, no, and they totally are. I think that was like, like, I mean, I definitely find it fascinating uh, that this film that is 95% African-American cast about the world's most powerful country with the world's smartest superhero, you know, all African-Americans. That's amazing. And it made so much money. And all these people in Hollywood are like, how did that happen? (laughs) And you're like, yeah, okay. We knew this was going to happen because you actually made a good movie. You put effort into it and made a, made a solid thing because you wanted this to work. But equally as strong are these female characters in here who are just amazing. In fact, I argued I found them much more interesting than T'Challa himself. Uh, the same here. Yeah. Uh, I far prefer them in the action sequences. And also, and, and, and I know that this is somewhat controversial, but like I far preferred this villain to Thanos as, in regards to death. Like, I can't Than- go with you there. But like Thanos, I get that people like his ultimate idea, but still I, I find flaws with that. I find flaws with... Um, Killmonger's idea as well, but still, like, I got the reasoning why. Whereas Thanos is clearly just batshit insane, and so therefore he has decided that it's better off to kill half the people in the universe. Both of them were just sort of like, well, they're fixated on an idea that that, that at its root was to help people. But then it somewhere along the line was just the wrong decision, considering that both of them stemmed from having a base of power that was so expansive that there was 80 other ways to accomplish the same goal. Where, like, even with Thanos, I'm like, you know, if the problem was on one planet, I might go, 
okay, you have, without space travel, I'd be like, okay, you have a point. But the entire fucking Gallic, why don't you just make some new planets, right? <laughs> make food bigger. There, we're good. <laughs> All food is gigantic. <laughs> Mom, you want to come in the kitchen and see our bananas? <laughs> Honey, I've told you to keep it in the pants. Uh, anyway, so our next movie is also kind of a superhero movie. I had so much fun. I have so much fun just saying the name of this film. It's brave it. Right, like, so... That's the character's name in this movie. Yeah. I would be so... I would feel so bad for that kid who inevitably comes along in this family line who's like into Magic the Gathering and is a super frail, skinny geek or just someone totally not physical like I was in high school. Like, oh... How could you not be a badass with, with a name, name like, like Braven? Braven? I know. And he, of course, you know, who else is going to play a character like with a name like Braven but Jason Momoa? Yeah, was... making me question my sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> he's once again playing a variety of Conan. Here he's modern-day modern, modern day woodsy Conan. I, I refer to Jason Momoa as not Conan because he's always... Conan, but he's not actually Conan. Yeah, the only time he was not good at being um, like a, a Conan character is when he was actually Conan. And even then, quite frankly, let's be honest, I blame the director. Yeah. It, w- it was not so good. But anyway, Momoa, love him or hate him, if you're watching this movie, you're probably a Momoa fan, because this is the kind of film that people who are Momoa fans dig. It is a, uh, he plays a super great guy who lives with his wife, played by Jill Wagner, and his daughter. Uh, his dad, played by Stephen Lang, Lang is starting to suffer from dementia and like it's, it looks like, like it's mid-stage it's like yeah, halfway there he, um, he still is aware but but, but he goes in and out there. of fugues yeah um and he doesn't want to admit it and um joe joe braven of course his name is joe it's either joe or john should have been bill uh, i've been surprised if it wasn't john i actually thought that's what it was aren't all action heroes secretly named john yes <laughs> at least in our time period uh anyway so he decides that he's going to go up with his dad and go to their secluded mountain cabin but meanwhile turns out there's drug traffickers um who are working with like one of joe's co-workers uh to transport drugs and there's an issue and a crash and like fuck what we're going to do all this stuff. And he's like, hey, my co-worker has this mountain cabin up here that I know about. There's no way he's going to be there because it's just not the time of year that they go there. So let's just go and hide out there till we can figure out how to move the stash. But psh, things com- combine and ends up with a standoff with Joe and his, and, and his uh, stepfather or his father in the cabin together fighting off, you know, mountain man style, all these drug dealers with guns and shit. With, with fancy machine guns. Yeah. And, you know, Joe's like... MacGyver and shit to like be a badass. I, he actually kills one guy with a flaming hatchet that he throws at him. And I was like, this movie wins. Well, um, what I what I liked is that for the most part, it was <laughs> believable badassery. Like they established that he's a roughneck. They established that his wife is an archery teacher. Yeah. So like he has believable real reasons for being able to live in this and be like this. It was like watching. Uh, that Jeremy Renner movie in Alaska, where the, he was the Bourne film. No, Windbreaker. Oh, well, oh, uh, yeah, uh, Wind River. Yeah, where like, yeah, this character could do everything, but you get it. He's not like just some super god. He's like, no, no. 
he kind of fucks up a little bit and he does this right, but overall he's just that big. I mean, badass. And the thing is, like this movie all depends on on um, Momoa being charismatic, and he is as charismatic yeah. as as he needs to be. I, I I certainly don't think this is like a new fantastic movie. No, it's one of those. This is a passably entertaining action film. It's better than a movie called Braven probably it, should have been. It's the kind of movie that I, I hesitate to say go out and buy it, but like if it ever came on. Watch it. It's uh, really fun. Go, yeah. Like, you got Garrett Dillahunt, who, because of his his weasel face, will never play anything but villains. And although, he plays the main villain I, here. He was, honestly, the only part I had a real problem with is that he he does a really good job when he's trying to be calm and cool as that cold, calculating villain. Right. But occasionally, he just goes wild, crazy man. And every time he does that, he, he just... He just lost it. It just didn't work. It lost me. Completely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, this is okay. It's well shot. It's got some cool kills in it. There's only one interview, which is uh, called The Braven's Views. (laughs) Just cracks me up. Um, Which is just Jason Momoa talking about the characters. Nothing special. One cool thing, which it it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but this movie does something interesting that most don't, where when you get shot, stabbed, hit with an arrow, whatever... You don't necessarily die. Yeah. Like, there are people who... There's a couple of guys who get shot right at the outset, and they continue to do things because they were a glancing blow, or it's not something that kills them. It's a... Yeah, something that's a serious, serious wound, but they can still function. Yeah, it's not that thing where you see in action movies of this type, usually where someone gets stabbed in the stomach and they kill over dead right away. Right. Uh, we were joking on it when I posted online. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't on my Facebook say, Chris is watching, whatever. Yeah. And I, I was watching Braven and people started discussing what the sequel would be called and it got very funny. <laughs> I was like Braven 2, Brave Harder. I was going to say the Bravening. Yeah, the Bravening, yeah. <coughs> Obviously, Braven 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yes, that well, that's because Electric Boogaloo is the best sequel title ever. It works with anything. Well, we're not talking about a sequel next, but we are talking about a taxi driver. No, uh-huh. not... Taxi driver. This is, quote, a taxi driver. And you should be able to tell the difference right off the bat because there's a Korean guy on the front of it. And you're like, oh, I don't think there were any Korean guys in, ta- in Martin Scorsese's taxi driver or Asians at all, for that matter. So, um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was a scene in a Chinese restaurant. I haven't spent a while since I've seen it. But that being said, this film, which was actually uh, submitted by South Korea for the best foreign language film at the last Academy Awards, but it was, did not end up getting picked, much to my surprise, because... I thought this was really fucking incredible. Uh, more than anything, reminding me of a sort of sweeter version of the, the, the Killing Fields. Like, the Killing Fields have it had comedy here and there. Yeah, so, so that's where I got it from, is a sweeter version. So what Chris yeah, and I were still talking the about, Killing Fields. Chris and I were talking about this prior, so I, I had two connections to this. One, uh, this is about a relatively traumatic incident that happened in South Korea in 1980 yeah. that apparently only one other movie has ever been made about that is like some Michael Bay-esque over-the-top thing. And the second is this takes place a year after the South Korean, at the time, dictator was assassinated. And they made a movie about that I saw ages ago on accident called The President's Last Bang. Okay. Which was this weird docu-comedy. And so I was super interested in the subject matter going in. That, and apparently I thought it was a sweet movie. (laughs) I watched this movie with my mother and my wife, while my son slept, A, not realizing it was like two and a half hours long, and B, not realizing that, yes, it may be a very interesting, heartfelt, very well-shot film, 
it's still about a terribly tragic incident. Yeah, which is the Gwangju uh, uprising. It's basically in a time of great instability in South Korea, this one town, and which was like a college town, all the students were like, no, we're not going to do what they want us to do. And they rose up and the military stepped in and just started slaughtering people. Yeah. So the main character, who's sort of like this jerk... Of a taxi cab driver, but he, we learn to be sympathized with his jerkiness as the film goes on. I, a bit. I don't want to say anti-hero. He's he's an understandably self-centered dick. Like, like, I mean, like more than he jerk, needs but to be. You get but it? He's as it goes along. Because you're like, oh, he's a single dad because his wife died relatively recently. He's trying to take care of his daughter. He lives in a place that uh, that the rent is too much for him to pay, even with his with his cabbie job. But he's doing the best he can with what skills he has, which clearly aren't much. Yeah. Uh, and he overhears some other drivers, some other cab drivers say, oh, man, I got this deal. I'm supposed to meet this guy here. They're paying me a huge amount of money just to take this guy on one trip. And he's like, fuck that guy. I'm going to fucking show up there and pretend I'm him and just take the job, which, you know, pretty dickish, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he does that. And the the person in question is uh, not an Asian. It's Tom actor Thomas Kretschmann, who is a German reporter. And he wants to go into the town, be driven into the town where this incident is taking place. Now – like, Kretschmann doesn't speak Korean, and uh, um, Kim, the driver, doesn't really speak but a smattering of English, basically. Yeah, he, he, can, he, had, uh, he had been a construction driver in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, he like, p- picks up the tiniest bit. So they're really having trouble communicating with each other. But when it's finally clear what's going on, and there's this, uh, like, the driver's like, fuck, this is the sort of thing that's going to get me killed, because the military's barricaded off the, the ways in and out of the town. Well, and and he's like, you don't get paid unless you get me in here. And on top of that, at this time, there was a military lockdown on the media, so... Mm-hmm. They did not know what was going on, and that's a big part of the movie is that this driver, he just thinks these are some asshole protesters. He has no concept of what's happening or the severity of what he's taking on until a good ways into the movie. And it really is kind of like he is the audience avatar in some ways as as the reporter who very much understands the gravity of this whole whole situation, but thinks that his driver is a total prick, because he kind of is, yeah. <laughs> um, is wants to get footage so people can see what's happening in this town is really happening and not what the Korean <sighs> government claims is happening, which is that, that not bad at the all. Nothing's bad. Yeah, nothing's bad. The only people who died were some government workers killed by angry students. And you're like, <sighs> yeah, that's not what's happening at all. Um and as you, our cab driver starts to see really the severity of what's going on, and he starts to become a very different human being. Uh, and I found this fascinating. It's actually based loosely on a true story, not of the cab driver and the reporter coming in, but there's a whole sequence where all the cabbies band together to try and in the town to save people. That actually happened, apparently, which was the inspiration for well, so like, for this thing. I, I'm sorry, the reporter and the guy, taxi cab driver, did actually sure. happen too, because there's a plea at the end of it from the actual guy who's like, "I've never been able to find the cab driver again. If you're out there, please." That whole experience meant so it was life changing for me. I want to see you at least one time before we die, which, as it says in text, sadly did not happen. Yeah. Oh God, that tore me to pieces. Yeah, I, I was. So uh, I I always hesitate to label a film as important, mm-hmm. but this really did feel like an important movie, especially uh, – I'm going to get slightly political now, I'm sorry – especially in this modern day and age where our media is under attack daily. This film is basically about the importance of an independent and honest media and – 
the kind of things that happen when you put a stranglehold on what they're allowed to say. Right. Like, this was so relevant for me watching this, especially with everything going on. And it worked like nobody's business. Both, I mean, yes, when they start really getting to the tragedy, it's hard to watch, but it's never not... I hate to say entertaining, but entertaining, you really do grow to feel for all the characters. And even though the main character does start out as a prick, I defy you to not be madly in love with him by the end. And yeah. like, there's a point where he, he has an out and he has this, he has that turn where he decides to really be a good guy and watching that journey, especially knowing that like he had the family and everything going on uh, as a father, was such an emotional turn for me. The the only thing that drove me crazy about this movie, and and it's so unfortunate because it happens towards the end, uh, the they, weirdly out of place chase scene. Yes, yeah, the goddamn car chase scene. There's a car chase scene. You're like, what? This and doesn't feel like anything else in like this entire movie. It, I mean, sure, the chase scene was entertaining. Yeah. Not to find that. But not but in the context of the type of movie It's a 15-minute sequence you can cut out, and it's better for it. <laughs> yeah, agreed. There like, was absolutely no... I mean, once... Like, there's a certain point where you're like, okay, well, then... This like, is the oh. end. And you can breathe a sigh of relief, and you're like, wow. <laughs> cool. But, like, they, for some somebody... It felt like a, a producer move. Yep. Going, this movie needs, like, something, like a big action set piece. And you're like, yeah, that was just yeah, not it, a good it call. It didn't need it. It provided resolution that we had already had. It, if we were doing star reviews, that would have alone dropped a star for my rating. Yeah, which is such a so shame, in every other way, this is, like, an essential watching film, except yeah. for that one like sequence towards the end. I mean, I still felt at the end of the movie, I was still like, wow, that was an amazing film, you know, but I still label it as it's important. You should watch it, especially today, but know that there's a part where if you are in any way, a a film geek who's watched a lot of movies, you're going to be like, Oh, they're doing this now. Right. And for the next 10 minutes, you're going to sit there going, Oh, well, they're This is this, this, this are going to happen. Okay. It's done. I can get involved again. Well, our next film was also a foreign film that was nominated, uh, was submitted to the this past, uh, or not, uh, a couple different <laughs> Academy Awards, two Academy Awards ago for Best Foreign Language Film, and also not nominated, uh, although made the shortlist, called The Fencer. <laughs> uh, sorry, The Fencer, which was was nominated for the Golden Globe Award. Uh, a, a Finnish movie that is based on a real story. Uh, it's during the Second World War. Uh, uh, it, well, before the the background is during the Second World War, the country of Estonia was occupied by Nazi Germany, who had drafted <clears throat> most of the men who have able body and mind into the German army, and then it was occupied by the Soviet Union, who considered anyone who had had that done to them criminals, and they were being sought out by the Soviet Union and like executed or put in jail. So this guy uh, Endel, uh, he has left Leningrad where he had been in that situation where he'd been drafted and he escaped from Leningrad to escape the secret police there. And he changes his name in the small town to looking for, uh, to become a teacher and ends up forming a sports club for his students. And basically students run by a, 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 a guy who's like, couldn't care less. Like a, like the Dean or headmaster or whatever is a real slash political agent. Yeah. A slash political like, agent. Like in any, in any movie, he would be that political officer from the hunt for the red October. But the guy, even though being warned by an old friend of his, you can't do anything that ties you into who you were well known for. And unfortunately, one of the things he was well known for because it was his passion was fencing. He was like a Olympic level athlete fencer 
And he just can't help himself. And he ends up starting to train the kids in fencing. And it turns into a whole thing where it kind of brings everybody, like, it brings hope into them and all that kind of thing. And the students together and the families together. And <laughs> everybody gets, I mean, in many ways, it's a, it, like, if this was an American film, which it, like, I could totally see that there being a super silly remake of this. There would have been a slow clap scene, you know, in the auditorium. <laughs> but, but it's, like, I feel like in structure, there's nothing super special here except that it actually is a true story. All yeah, this stuff really happened, and the guy really is kind of an inspirational dude. So, like, um, but not a lot happens here. Yeah, that, that was, so that's my problem with it. I, 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 I rarely say this, but this is one of those few instances where I feel like, an American movie would have been better because uh, uh, you just love me, the slow clap scenes. Let me explain. So there's this feel that you tend to see with Eastern European cinema a lot. Uh, all the characters tend to be a little cold and a little dispassionate. Right. The cinematography tends to be very slow and methodical. The music is very quiet. Uh, it, the color palettes are all the same, which okay, I can't argue that because that's it might be what it looks like. Yeah, but this was Eastern European movie, the movie. Yeah, and like <laughs> I kept going, like Jesus Christ, crack a joke, something. I got a little more into it as the character started to get more into the fencing academy. Right. It really takes about 40 minutes before yeah. you start like feeling that this movie is anything except impenetrable, so to speak. But, but even then, <laughs> it, it really felt like uh, it felt like an American film student going, this is going to be great. Check this shit out. And making Eastern European movie the movie, kind of like Will Ferrell made that Lifetime movie parody that was just a Lifetime movie. Right, right. This is what that felt like to me. And it just, I never got into it because of that. I think I liked it more than you did, but even so, it wasn't until almost the halfway point that I started enjoying it. I mean, it's a tight 98 minutes, but it feels longer than that. Because it just, the whole, like I said, the whole first half really drags. And there's a mild bit of excitement in the third act, but it really kind of doesn't pay off. Yeah. I, this is okay. There's I, a lot of good ideas, and this guy's actual—I mean, like if you just go—I I was unfortunately <coughs> he wasn't like famous enough where there's even a Wikipedia page for the guy, but but it was a real guy, and you can if you do some googling find out basically the whole story of what really happened. And and yeah, he's a like really inspirational dude, but like the movie itself just kind of felt left me feeling a little bit dry. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to another movie that I have mixed feelings about, but <laughs> certainly unlike any other movie I've seen, <laughs> Red Rings of Fear, called here by its Italian title Enigma Ros- Ros- Rosso, so, I suspected drawing a direct tie to audiences with the much superior giallo film that preceded it, Profondo Rosso. Fun fact, Red. there is a special feature on here for trailers, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if you watch it. It's basically seven minutes of Grindhouse trailers. Awesome. I mentioned this only because two things I learned from it. One, I suddenly get why the puritanical people were all up in arms about this kind of film back in the day. Because it's seven minutes of tits and blood. Yeah. Like, um, but one of the trailers was for a movie called... Uh, I forget. It's Italian for, it looks like the three orgies. Okay. And it was just a naked lady and this brown dildo and some woman in a shower acting in pain. And it looked like there was a witch spell or something. So then fast forward and I watched the movie afterwards and I realized this is the three orgies. Well, this is a, <laughs> this movie is, is, there's no question it's a giallo film. I would not, absolutely not, yeah. not qualify it as a giallo, but 
very light on on the gory violence, which is not usual for a giallo, and very heavy on weird sex shit, which is really strange for a giallo. Yeah, it just it blew me away that there this movie is advertised on this disc as a different movie. It's basically Porky's crossed with like an old giallo. Now, having said that, <laughs> I will say like. Yeah, the the plot, if there is a plot, it involves uh, an actual detective, which was kind of fun. That yeah. it was a detective doing the this, investigation. We watch all these Argento films where it's always like a professional violinist yeah, or, or, or a reporter. Or a reporter. Or reporter. <laughs> it's yeah. never a real cop. So it was like, oh, shit, that's cool. It's a cop. <laughs> but um, he, he's investigating a murder and trying to figure out what happened. And, at, at a school uh, school for girls. <laughs> at a school for girls, which wastes, yeah. The movie wastes no time moving us into the shower so we can see all of said schoolgirls yeah, so naked and wandering around. There's lots of nudity in the movie. Lots. lots of very beautiful Italian women. And that's about it? I mean, okay. So like, I, I don't want to dismiss this completely either because I think there's some really interesting shots in this thing. I think the twist is actually very entertaining. I had a fun time with the, like, the whole yeah. wrap-up of this movie. I, was like, oh, I, I that's will funny. agree. It was a great idea. I wish it had been done a bit better. Yeah. But it was still worthy. Yeah. Um... Uh, the fact that the, the first person was a woman who dies, died from some sort of crazy fucked up, like spiked dildo that they quote, ripped up her insides. Oh, he killed her with a dildo. Uh, I, I had Not the first that, time that's happened in a movie. Crimes of passion. I, <laughs> seven. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Seven. Uh, was I one. was referring to this movie as the dick of death the, the entire time death. I had it. <laughs> I, you know, it's okay. It's like, there's a lot of stuff in here that like, Reminds me of other things, but but reminds me in a way where like, well, it's not as good as those other yeah. things. Like, it's so. Here's the way I ended up kind of falling on it. It's not bad. Like, if you're into this kind of movie, it is not a terrible example. No, there's some really interesting visuals. There's some really actually kind of interesting plot points. The but the problem is is that none of it really is great either. Yeah. It's all it's just, all just like. Oh, remind uh, you of better okay. films. Yeah. The only thing that makes us really stand out is that you, I'm just not used to seeing this much nudity and sex in a giallo film. It, uh, it really is kind of a sexploitation giallo film, which is, I mean, if there's more of this, I assume there's got to be some more of that out there, but this is the only one I ever saw. That, and I have to admit, I ended up being really disappointed with the both the kills and the attempts of kills. There was like one really interesting murder that was kind of cool. Yeah. The rest were just yeah, like... Once again, the gore is like really oh, not that creative or interesting. Yeah. Which and is, that's usually something that's... That's the one thing you can count on a giallo yeah. film to do right. Uh, there's a, the only real extra other than that trailer feature you mentioned is an audio commentary by a historian of the genre, Nathaniel Thompson, who also seems strangely nonplussed and kind of meh about this movie. <laughs> which, you know, maybe that was the wrong guy to get to be on your commentary. But regardless, it's an interesting curiosity, as is a film I like a lot more than that, but... I can understand how, for many, this is nothing more than an interesting curiosity. And a movie that I will never watch. <laughs> what, what? You didn't watch it? Killer Clowns from Outer Space? You didn't give me this. What? I didn't? No. <gasps> Maybe I put it on the wrong list. Shit. 
I'll put it up. You know what? I think this one's on Joe's list. Yes, okay. it is. I'm sorry. My mistake. I added it mistakenly to that one. That's okay. I'm terrified of clowns. So oh. Thank you. Oh, okay. Well, sorry. That'll be on the next show. Uh, <laughs> instead, we're going to talk about Jasper Jones. You saw this one, right? I did. I okay, did. good. This is an Australian mystery <clears throat> drama film based on a very popular book uh, by Craig Sylvie, which I had not read. Um, this is directed by Rachel Perkins, who uh, has done a, a lot of other Australian films. Like One Night the Moon is the only one I had heard of. But I was curious about this mainly because of the actor playing the protagonist, Levi Miller, who was in one of my favorite horror films the last quite a few years, Better Watch Out. Oh, my God. I didn't realize that was him. The same kid. Uh, The idea is he plays Charlie. He's a 14-year-old living in a fictional rural town uh, in Western Australia. Uh, He hangs out with his best friend, a Vietnamese boy uh, named Jeff. Uh, And he deals with a lot of the fact that, like, his whole family is dealt, has to deal with constant racism from the rest of the rednecky town there, even though, uh, Charlie, uh, fashions himself an intellectual. Cool. Uh, and there's like, he's got a crush on a local girl named Eliza. And then one evening on Christmas, he's visited by the titular Jasper Jones, who is a uh, mixed white Aboriginal kid who nobody really, he's kind of thought of as the bad boy in town. And, because and, he's mixed white Aboriginal. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and Charlie has no relationship with this kid. So, so he's like, like literally a guy knocks on his window in the middle of the night. He's like, Charlie, I need your help. And he's like, why would he even come to me? Well, he doesn't know who else to go to other than the guy he knows isn't a racist is what it comes down to. <laughs> And he comes out because he he's found uh, he leads him to a young dead girl who's been hung by the who's been hung by the neck, and he's like, "What the fuck?" And of course, his first assumption is like, "Oh my god, this guy killed him! Now he's going to kill me!" And basically, Jasper is like, "Confront what you just did there with your yeah. thoughts, and now you know why I need someone to help me other than the police." Because they're just going to really cool scene. Yeah, because I'm just going to assume that they're just going to assume I did it and I did not do it. And it current turns into a thing uh, like with basically him helping this kid who uh, like to try and find out what happened uh, as various other relationships build or crumble. Yeah. They find out things about themselves and who they're actually related to. And there's a lot of really like nice moments in this film. But I kind of felt like the film never had an overarching feel to it. Yeah. You so, know what I mean? Like, it's like nothing, it never, a lot of good scenes, a lot of great ideas, but nothing totally gel. It never totally gels together. Yep. So, like, I, I went into this. Interestingly enough, this was the one I thought was going to be super fucked up and twisted and violent, not a taxi driver. But, um. I mean, it does inv- involve like, it, it incest dark, and rape and murder. <laughs> here's the thing, like, this sounds like a murder mystery, mm. and it's not. It's more of a coming of age. It's, it's a slice of life coming of age movie. Yeah, and you're right. All the individual components are really interesting. The idea of a Vietnamese family living in Australia during the Vietnam War was fascinating. Right. The idea of him watching his parents' relationship change as his mother is going through issues of boredom and her dad his dad is wrapped up in projects and unaware was a really interesting plot. The idea of forming a relationship with a girl whose sister dies in the beginning is interesting. The way like like all those different points 
are really interesting. And when they get into those plots, it's like, oh, this is cool. I want to see how this plays out. Right. Uh, it, you know, even this, with Jasper Jones and his, and there's, there's a learn lot, about him. There's a lot of different storylines that feel so crammed together that you're like, I can tell this was written based on a novel. Yeah. And this is the type of thing I'm like, and, why wasn't this a miniseries? You're right, because like, it never comes together. There's never a moment where you're like, oh, this is the story. Uh, I think it would have worked significantly better as like a four-part miniseries. Yeah. And honestly, I'm kind of intrigued with the book. I'd like to check it out. Yeah, supposedly it's great. Um, but, like I said, there's so much good stuff here. I, I really kind of more than anything blame the director, who just, it just feels so kind of workmanlike. Yeah. You like know? It, 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 yeah, like it's an no interesting re- watch, but there's nothing really special. Yeah. Although I will say my takeaway from this is Australian mobs suck in the 60s. <laughs> there is not a single mob in this movie who doesn't slap, insult, call her kids stupid, That's or true. shove them around. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, which brings me Tony Collette <coughs> is in this, um, uh, who is plays the mom of Levi Miller, and Hugo Weaving is in this as the who local crazy man. Turns in a surprisingly good performance in the like five minutes of movie he has. Yeah, he's not in it a lot, but he is a linchpin to to like the yeah, emotional everything. center of the film. Yeah, I, yeah. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff to like here. It just should have been a lot better than it is. All right, so we will move on then to Sleeping Dogs, which is not a film about dogs that are sleeping. It's more like an expression that let sleeping dogs lie. This is a very odd uh, New Zealand film that's kind of like, <laughs> it's like a, a mountainy version of uh, of The Trial by, by Kafka. So it's interesting. <laughs> I made it halfway through this movie before I finally stopped it and went... Wait, is this a real event that happened? And Googled, like, because in my head I was like, there's no way they could ever be like a New Zealand dictatorship. Right. Did it happen? Is this a thing? No, No, it didn't. In its weird way, it's kind of like like dystopian science fiction in a sort of way. Nothing about it feels that. It feels like maybe it was a real thing. But you've got 1977. This is based on a book called Smith's Dream by C.K. Stead. It was the first feature film by director Roger Donaldson and also was the very first movie for Sam Neill that he starred in. Who turns a good performance, actually. Yeah, really good. Um, It's... Yeah, New Zealand is turning into a police state. A fascist government allows martial law. Um, we see our main right. character, Sam Neill's character, who's just known as Smith, um, uh, is ends up having to to run from the police uh, through a misunderstanding. Um, like basically, a bomb has exploded in a nearby town. Police arrive to arrest him. And it's like him being on the run and then finding peace and then that peace is shattered. And this sort of like, why is this even happening to me type of thing? Yeah. I really like, it's like the rebels kind of force him to do things that end up making him be associated with them, even though he wants nothing to do with them. And to the police's eyes, he's like the symbol of the rebels. And it's like, like I said, it's a very Kafka-esque well, it, situation. That's that a great comparison because I really struggled with this movie. Yeah. I love the performance. Uh, I, I immediately felt like I was watching uh, the Crazies by Romero with the way the, the way it was shot. Yeah, but like I kept wondering what was the point of the movie mm. because if it was a stance against the government, I really would have preferred more proactive action by the main character. And if it's about reacting to government control. 
I, I I was like I don't like I never got the point of the movie except to watch how a good man could be tortured by coincidence. Yeah, I mean and, it was like I, I felt like in some ways it was an argument about taking a stance because regardless this guy's life is ruined by all the shit, so why didn't he just take yeah, a fucking stand? But he never really takes a stand. No, he's not he is, at all. He is complete well I know, but like the, like I said, I think he's sort of is supposed to stand out as an example of yeah. like see if he had just taken a stand, things probably would have turned out very differently. Um maybe they wouldn't have. I don't know. You could be right. I the biggest problem with this movie is very slow paced. Yeah. And there's long stretches where not shit happens. It's not really till the third act where it, the movie goes completely bonkers when Warren Oates shows up as like a military guy who's like, and the like Sam Neill's fucking girl lives at this hotel that's run by the revolutionaries. Who just shows up? Who just shows up? And then she wants to fuck the Mel- Warren Oates or something. And then there's like a crazy chase through the mountains and like like helicopter shooting at them. And I was kind of like at that point I was like I don't even really know what's going on anymore. But it's it's you know it at least something's happening. Like, I, I ended up, I feel like this was probably something that was intended as having a very specific meaning behind it that the filmmakers were intending, not necessarily something that was intended to be an enjoyable movie to audiences. And as such, like, I get that there's probably a purpose behind it, but (laughs) especially now, what, 30 years separated from it? Eh, I didn't get it. And 40 years. 40. God, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I just didn't see the point of the movie. I mean, maybe if I had watched, listened to the commentary uh, on here with uh, director Roger Donaldson, Sam Neill, and Ian Moon, I would understand more. There's also a 30-minute uh-huh. making of Sleeping Dogs archival piece. Uh, there's a, a more modern making of Sleeping uh, Dogs from 2004, which is even more in-depth at an hour and seven minutes. I did not take the time to watch those. I'm I did not. So either. I suck, and I'm sorry. Maybe I would have understood the film better. But I'll be honest, <laughs> yeah. when the film was over, I was just done with it. I, was I, like, okay. I have this image of somebody in the comments being like, you sons of bitches, if you had watched this, it would have made perfect sense, and you would see that this is a masterpiece. And they're probably right. Uh, a film I did really enjoy a lot more than that that is considered an older classic is The Awful Truth, now being released in the Criterion Blu-ray. I always love the Criterion Blu-rays. This film is kind of unique in that it kind of is the movie, uh, came out in 1937, that defined the rules and the tone for what became the modern American screwball comedy. Like, this is generally thought of as one of the very first screwball comedies that kind of, like, like the stuff in here is stuff you'll see happen again and again and again and again and again. And it's interesting. And, it's one of the few times that I can say that the sensibilities of the 30s actually really helped this movie. Yeah. If you made this movie today, the leads would hate each other throughout the entire film yeah. and would be so vitriolic that you never really liked them because they were so hampered with what they could do in the film. It ends up coming across as just being playful and coy, and they always really care for each other. Yeah. So when they inevitably get to the ending, you know is going to happen before the movie even starts. You really like the characters. Um, and it, it's also interesting because for Cary Grant, who plays the male lead in here, this was kind of the first movie that he played the type of character uh-huh. that Cary Grant would go on to play in almost every movie he made uh, after this. This is also the movie that made me realize that Cary Grant and Gene Kelly are not the same people oh. because I've always conflated the two. You told me this was Cary Grant's big hit, and when he came on screen, I was like, wait. Well, it was it was his breakout hit? Like, is is that him? Like, I thought this was the guy from Singing in the Rain. This what? was definitely one of the first films where everybody pointed at, pointed at him and said, "Wow, I love that guy." And ever 
you know, after this, pretty much all he did was play fast talking debonair like rich dudes. <laughs> you know, he was just really good at it. I always say George Clooney is kind of the Cary Grant of our time. Yeah, um, and, I buy that. And you see it totally here. And the idea is he's married to Irene Dunn, who is also, for the record, really amazing in this. Um, and it's ends up being a sort of play where, like, they're both lying to each other about places they were and what they were doing, and there's affairs evolved, and they decide, well, that's it. We're going to get divorced. And both of them decide they have to find a way to prove to the other one that they're the one who's making a mistake, and they're the horrible person, and they're the reason that this is all going wrong, even though you, as an audience member, totally understand that they totally love each other, and they just need to get over it. Yeah, and the one thing... Sorry, I just had a mind fart. Uh, the one thing that was really cool, too, is that, again, because of the sensibilities of it, there's this playful camaraderie that happens the entire time. I, I never even really got the sense that they were actually trying to best each other, even. It almost felt more like it was, it almost, they dared each other into ending their relationship, and they were like, shit, I really don't want to do this. And it's like, with both of them getting relationships with two other people that are just obviously, they're totally badly matched with, but, you know, both of them on paper seem like they'd be a good yeah. match. You're like, there's that part of you who's like, what if there's like a total twist ending where it's like, well, those people are evil and they set up this whole thing because they're like superheroes who fuck with people's I, lives. I will say evil. the only thing that asks me, <laughs> do you realize that this entire film takes place in 90 days? So in a 90-day period, they both met and became engaged to other people. Well, that's how it worked back in the day. <laughs> like, I'm attracted to you. Oh we should get married. God. <laughs> uh, I, I actually found this an awful lot of fun. Um, it's uh, a very tight and fast-moving 90 minutes. It's lots of snappy patter uh, and, and great performance. Uh, Ad- Atlantic ac- accents, mid-Atlantic accents. Um, if you oh like that God, kind of I thing. Didn't realize that. They do have mid-Atlantic oh, accents. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back they're then, so was, thick. And, uh, yeah, everybody in this talks that way, except for the Southern Gentleman character. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. If you like the, that sort of film, this might be one of those ones that you just missed along the way that I feel is completely worthy of, of checking out, along with a lot of the other classics. A- absolutely. This is one of those great comedy of social error movies. Yep. still delight to watch. Uh, this being Criterion, there's a lot of bonus features even in addition to the 18-page illustrated book booklet with an essay by critic Mo- uh, Molly Haskell. There is the Lux Radio Theater adaptation of it that you can listen to the entire thing called, starring Cary Grant and Claudette Colbert that aired in 1939. Uh, there's Tell Me Lies About Cary Grant, which is a video essay where a critic talks about the, the classic image of Cary Grant and the way in which he kind of crafted that image for himself. Uh, there's Gary Giddings, which is a video interview with a critic who talks about Leo McCary, the director, his directed methods and improvisational techniques, how the comedy genre evolved in Hollywood after World War II, and how that all kind of connects to this film specifically. There's a archival illustrated audio interview with actress Irene Dunn, where she discusses working with the director and with Cary Grant in this film that was conducted by a film scholar in 1978. So really, a solid package, and for those of you out there who consider Digital Noise your Cinema 101 one of hist- uh, history films I should watch to understand the history of cinema better that I'll also enjoy watching. Go ahead and put this one on your list. Absolutely. All right. And that moves us on to another film that couldn't be more different than that, except both are movies, both are comedies, and both have people in them. And I would also consider this kind of a classic. I would say this is the movie that created the stoner comedy genre. Before we get into this, I... Watch this movie with my parents. What? Why would you do that? No, no, not this time. 
at age 11. Oh, geez. My parents showed me to this. I have watched this with them like a dozen times. That's hysterical. We quote this movie I want to hang out and light up with your parents, man. Yeah, like, I, so <laughs> I've never really watched it in that way. Well, I've it, never got high to watch it, but I've, it's always been just one of my classic family comedies from my house. <laughs> That's a weird... I've never heard I don't think <laughs> anyone's ever family, described okay. this as a classic family <laughs> But uh, we are talking about the very first Cheech and Chong feature-length film, Up in Smoke, which a lot of people still say is their best one. I, I've always kind of leaned a little bit more towards Nice Dreams. Uh, is Nice Dreams the one where he gets stuck on the elevator naked? I believe so. It's the one with the, with um, um, Pee Wee Herman. Ooh. So I've always thought that the elevator sequence from that movie is the funniest thing they've ever done. This is the movie I've enjoyed the most of theirs. And this movie is like, like they had been already a comedy team together, uh, like very much counterculture comedy team. It was doing lots of weed jokes and things, you know, that appealed to the hippie crowd for about 10 years. And they'd really kind of like worked out their shtick. And uh, they were kind of sketch comics playing characters like that. Yeah. Um and so when they got together with this director, Lou Adler, who was kind of the guy who was like, went to go see him, is like, I get it. I, these guys I can make into a, a Hollywood thing. They were kind of skeptical. But this is kind of in some ways like them taking all those sketches and finding a way to work them into a kind of barely cohesive storyline. I mean, of a narrative. It's kind of a narrative. It's really just two stoner guys who end up meeting up and drift through life. Like through, through like a weekend, meeting up other crazy stoner people and like almost getting in trouble. <laughs> like there, the, to me, the funniest bit in this whole thing is they 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 basically they get sent to uh, like Mexico to pick up like they're going to get paid to pick up uh, a truck of like a relative or something. I can't remember what the connection was. And the deal is the truck is made out of marijuana. And well, the whole time, Stacy Keach and a gr- group of incompetent cops are chasing them, and they can't figure out they for some reason they still can't can never figure out what the right uh car is they just know there's a car made of marijuana and it's, it's funny scene. i didn't even realize this until this time i was watching it they weren't supposed to pick up that truck yeah they were sent to pick up an actual upholstery truck right but because they ate a burrito went to the wrong place i never got that before right. watching it this time well the, like the exhaust <laughs> ends up catching like part of the the paint job which is made of weed on fire is the scene where a motorcycle cop pulls him over and he just he's so stoned after driving which is not how pop works but he comes up and goes hey t- hey man can i have a bite of your hot dog <laughs> it's like he'd say he's like thanks man and wanders off and they're like what the fuck just happened <laughs> the, the only part that i feel like slows this down at all is like actually the very end which is funny the first time you see it but it's not like they get they go to a battle of the bands thing and it's kind of the song has never been one of my favorite Cheech and Chong songs, and it goes on for that whole sequence goes on for way too long. Um, it's all right. I get a lot of people think of that scene as classic, so I'm so it's interesting, but. like changing taste or different taste. Maybe because I watched it when I was younger, I always enjoyed that part. The part that I kind of ended up rolling my eyes at was some of the stuff with the cops, mm. the bumbling cops. Like right. it just doesn't work as much for me. And there's a lot of it, and yeah, with Stacy Keach being like this total hard ass as hell cop, and and his his like his flunkies are complete morons. And it, it, it does overplay its hand a little bit. Having said that, this movie, in the first 15 minutes, there is quite possibly the funniest thing I have ever seen in my entire life, and I am way selling this, which is them smoking the joint that's like a foot wide yeah. and like six. And they actually and, had a record that came with the rolling paper so you could make your own giant yeah. joint like this, and which then, would take like, like a half ounce of pot to make. And that. so they like get, they, 
get so high they can't drive. Yeah. Then they get pulled over while still or still and try to talk their way through that yeah. while also rolling on, I think, ecstasy. It's something. Like, that whole sequence, it's like a five to ten minute sequence, is just I quote that shit to my parents all the time. I can't tell you how many times. His name's Ralph, man. (laughs) You know, a lot of comedies like this that I remember loving when I was a kid, I'd come back to and I'm like, it's not that funny. This, I fucking, I've probably seen this 20 times and I hadn't seen it for a long time, but I watched it again and I laughed all the way through this thing watching it again. It's a genuinely funny stoner comedy that still holds up today. Like, it's very rare that watching a comedy by myself with nobody else will make me honestly laugh out loud. Yeah. I crack up laughing this whole movie through. Uh, I, I tend to agree. I think this is really kind of a classic, um, it's obviously for a narrow window of people. I would I would suggest that maybe if you have had zero experiences with marijuana, this is not going to be your movie. Yeah. Unless maybe, maybe you're one of those people who has zero but really wants to. Or it's not like this, but <laughs> like them being high is totally different from any stoning stoner experience I've ever had. Well, I have to call it. It's generally not the best practice to show this to your 11 to 12 year old son. No, My parents not. were weird. They showed me weird movies. That's probably why I am the way I am. And yeah. I love that. But nevertheless, oh my God, this movie is perfect. Uh, there's a lot of bonus features that come in this an- uh, anniversary copy of this, including a audio commentary with Cheech Marin and director Lou Adler. Um, there is uh, How Pedro Met the Man, Up in Smoke at 40, which hits Chong and Cheech and Chong together, and then the director separately looking back at the first time they got high, about meeting, how it all led up to this, making the movie that's really entertaining. This was, That's a brand new uh, feature. But there's also a vintage piece from a previous edition from like 10 years ago that's essentially the same thing, just with slightly different versions of the stories going on. Uh, there's roach clips, which are outtakes, which are actually quite funny and really all worth watching here. There's an animated music video for the song Earache My Eye featuring Alice Bowie. There's uh, Cheech and Chung's The Man Song, which is clips of the actors saying the word man, man, throughout the movie. And then there's some vintage radio spots uh, that were advertising the, the film. This is a really uh, a solid package. I highly and recommend it. I, I got to admit, I watched every single special feature. <laughs> but my favorite story, which I have to tell because I think it's my favorite thing about it, is that they never actually got high while making the movie because the first time they were going to shoot something, they were high. Yeah. And forgot to do the actual action of driving the car <laughs> and realized at that point that they had to smoke fake weed while making the movie. Right, because otherwise they would never get the movie Yeah, made. just never done. Uh, our next film is a, a another film that's regarded by many to be a classic, and that is the 1978 film adaptation of the, of the musical romantic comedy Grease. You know, I didn't even see this movie for the first time until like maybe eight years ago. So, I watched this as a kid. Yeah. Um... I saw Grease 2 a hundred times. So I've never seen that. I've been told Grease 2 is... A, I want to see it. I've been well, told well, it, it, was when, it. it was back in the day when we had HBO, but there were only like six movies playing every month on HBO, and they just rotated them <laughs> constantly. So that was so, one like, of So, like, I went into this movie remembering, like, okay, yeah, the gender politics get really weird at the end. Mm. And, like, okay, I'm ready for that. And I was totally psyched and prepared. And then I discovered that the rest of the movie is even rapier and worse. It really kind of is. Oh, my God, did this movie skis me out so bad the entire time. It's it's a, <clears throat> it's funny how quickly things took a turn with how dark that shit is now. Yeah. Like in the space of two years, stuff that we were like, oh, well, that's a little skeezy, but 
is now like, fuck, man, that's messed up. Uh, but, you know, that's how awareness yeah, works like, and changes. Like, so it's but, got a lot of great songs. Yeah, the songs are fucking fantastic here. I think the performances are great in this. I mean, this is definitely the movie that made America fall in love with John Travolta. And, you know, like we'll just ha- we can just ignore the fact that like one of the great songs is because he's upset with her for not fucking him in the back of a car. <laughs> well, it's in 1958. Uh, <coughs> plays John Travolta plays a, a greaser. You know the guys, Fonzie, basically. Yeah. Um, who is uh, hooking up over the summer with a Australian girl played by Olivia Newton-John? Who, by the way, I was totally in love with when I was a kid. She was like my first crush, but it was not because of this movie. It was because of Xanadu. Oh, oh Chris, <laughs> I had a poster. I, I, I know that closet. you're going to die on that cross of Xanadu, but oh. no, I understand <laughs> it's not a movie that is good in any conventional sense. But you know, neither is Flash Gordon, and people love to rave about how great you that dare is. talk bad about Flash Gordon. Sorry, Flash it Gordon, is a masterpiece. It's a terrible movie. It is that I love. Delightful. It's terrible. <laughs> um, anyway, so she plays Sandy, and they met at the beach, and they fell in love, and it was all sweet. And her family was returning to Australia, uh, and uh, they're like, "Oh, we'll find a way to get back together." And Danny gets back, goes back to high school, you know, summer's over, and even though he's clearly, like, 30, um, and, <laughs> and uh, like, he gets together with his other greasers, where he's kind of king of the greasers, a total badass, and then Sandy ends up being able to stay and go to the school, and he doesn't know that, and so they... Uh, sh- like end up having what should be a meat cute only he can't get over his toxic masculinity in front of his yeah. friends to actually be sweet towards her Which, and treat her like he was treating her that summer. I mean, ultimately that's the plot of the movie. That is the entire, there is the a genuinely nice, sweet, beautiful girl who likes him. Yeah. He likes her, but he is too cool to care. Yeah. And the whole movie is, are we ever going to find out that he's not too cool to care? Yeah, that there's like, you know, the cool <laughs> thing is to care. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a really simple plot, but it's a lot of really fun set pieces and just fucking awesome songs. Yeah. Like, you know, and there's so many good actors in this thing that I really like. I mean, Stockard Channing, this was one of her first movies here, playing the leader of the Pink Ladies, who's sort of like high school sorority, I guess. I don't know. Sort of at the same time being like a greaser girl? Yeah, kind of. It was a weird comedy. But it was, it, she was interesting, though. I mean, there's no denying this film had long-reaching effects <laughs> and, and, and influence. And there's a lot of people who absolutely love this film. And like I said, I was kind of a latecomer to it. I think of Michelle Pfeiffer as the main female character in yeah. Greece because of the second one. I know. I'm not saying Grease 2 is better. Believe me. I understand. I'm just saying I had more exposure to that one. And I, but that being said, like I said, I didn't have that strong nostalgic attachment to this movie. A lot of people did. So I'm kind of like, yeah... It's fine. I'd almost rather just listen to the soundtrack than watch the movie. That's where I am. Like, I used to really... I remember really liking this as a kid. And I just... Man, it blew me away how how horribly toxic all the masculinity is all up and down this movie. I just could not get into it this time. Well, this is also a 40th anniversary edition that's just come out that you can either get on uh, 4K. Now, if you get that, there's almost no bonus features. But there... But it is a considerably better transfer alone than the Blu-ray, which is upgraded from the previous Blu-ray that existed, but uh, from 2009. But it's still like it's uh, just so much clearer. They put more effort into that version being significantly better. Um, But you get all the bonus features that previously existed on on here, which there was quite a few, as well as new stuff. There's uh, Grease, A Chicago Story, which is a 24-minute look back at the original stage production in Chicago. 
There's new alternate animated main titles that was kind of a rough demo that was recently discovered that was like, you know, the original version of the, the titles never used. There's a new version of an alternate ending, which was previously available, but only in black and white. Now they've apparently found or, or colorized. I'm not sure which a print of it. Uh, and then everything else that we've got from the previous one, like I said, like deleted extended alternate scenes. There's a Grease reunion in 2002. There's uh, interviews with John and Olivia talking about their memories from it. I mean, there's a shit ton of stuff on here. So yeah. if you are, just a huge fan of Greece. This is the ultimate edition. And, and like, if you like the movie, you should absolutely go buy this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and our last film, and I'm going to say my pick of the week. Yes, same here. Total agreement absolutely. with me is the. I can't believe this series is this good. Paddington Two. Hell, like when your friends go, come on. How many sequels are really better than the original when the original is great? Paddington 2 is going to be way high up there on that list of, like, inarguably, to me, a better sequel than the original, which was already a fucking fantastic Oh, film. my God. I pushed this series on so many people, it's not even funny. I, I try so hard to convince Everybody, people. Watch Paddington. Watch Paddington you know, When we saw it in the theater, I remember Michael was with me, and he was like, I had to kind of bribe him just to get him to go to Paddington 2. He hadn't seen the first one. He didn't know anything about the characters. Like, this is going to be boring. I was like, I promise you. All signs point to this is going to be amazing. When he came out, he practically hugged me. He had tears in his eyes. He was like, that was one of the best movies I have literally ever seen. Oh, I was like, I'm like, not sure I'm going to go that far, but it is definitely one of the very best children's films ever made. Also, this, it's, it's like top five of that year for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. From 2017. Yeah. Uh, Paddington 2 continues the story of Paddington Bear, the character created by Michael Bond, that I admit maybe I'm a tiny bit biased towards because I ended up, re- I was reading these stories as a kid. My, oh, my parents uh, would bring me the books. For full disclosure, just so that our listeners know that there's not all bias, I have never seen a single frame image or audio clip of Paddington before these two movies. Fair enough. Uh, ben Wyshaw is the voice of Paddington, who is a uh, like a bear that will never grow up, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> he will never turn into a full-size bear, no matter how many Paddington movies we end up <laughs> with. He will always be a bear cub that's adorable, that dresses in kind of a, a raincoat galoshes and, and like a big floppy hat that has been adopted by a very loving family. Uh, uh, Sally Hawkins, of course, who has just had two fucking fantastic films in the same year last year, this in the shape of water uh, and Hugh Bonneville as their adoptive, uh, his adoptive parents, basically. Um, And this particular film involves his aunt. Lucy is going to come from like, the jungle? <laughs> well, no, no, she, she, yeah. She's at the retirement home yeah. for bears, which, right. by the way, I was so grateful when this movie like went into that further because my wife was absolutely 100% convinced in the first film that the retirement home for bears was death. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a metaphor. <laughs> bears are the only species who can come back from death. So, uh, because they'll never die. They're going to eat you. If one shows up, you're dead. Just give in. This so, message yeah. so brought it, to you by the Bears Are Hungry Foundation. So, yeah, it's her birthday, and he's trying to get yeah. her a birthday She's, gift. Yeah, and he sees in this pawn shop this amazing pop-up book that was uh, based on the, this vaguely famous person who had, had handmade this thing about their first trip to London. Like, oh, my aunt it'd be has always dreamed of coming to London, and I'll, I'll give this to her, and it'll be wonderful. But it's very expensive because it's very rare. So he's like, I'm going to do a bunch of odd jobs. Well, anyway, not to... 
get to uh, along with this because I could talk about this movie forever. Hugh Grant plays Phoenix Buchanan in a uh, a nar- total narcissist actor whose career is completely on the wane. So he's basically having to take bullshit jobs like opening up carnivals and stuff and cutting yeah. ribbons and, and uh, dog dog who, food advertisements. Who is playing this role so incredibly over the top that I you honestly ask yourself why his whole career hasn't been like this because he's so good at it. He is so outrageous. I mean, it made me go. Uh, I never thought about it before this, but that guy should be Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, shit. That would be good. Yeah. It, it's so outrageous and fun, but he's the villain. He's like total narcissist. And he ends <clears> up <throat> framing Paddington. And Paddington goes to jail in one of the most glorious sequences in any children's movie ever with Brendan Gleeson as the leader, sort of all the criminals, Knuckles McGinty. I'm going to change my name to Knuckles McGinty. I love that. And, of course, he ends up charming the entire prison. And it doesn't – like like everyone there, they just – that's the whole thing with Paddington. It's almost like he has magical powers well, to make almost anyone fall in love with him. He, he's naive. Yeah. And he is naive in a way that he always assumes someone has the best intentions. And, therefore, he inspires that in others. And so, like, the, the – him going to jail is the only part of the entire movie that I didn't like. Really? Uh, not the not the not what happened in jail. Right. But maybe I don't understand British law, but the whole time I was going even the person like so he is accused of robbing a store, even the person who owns that store says absolutely he did not do it. If he doesn't press charges, why is he going to jail? Like I couldn't get past that. Having said that though, I realized while watching this movie, what it is that's so fantastic about this film is the director does such a good job of blending styles. It's like watching a movie that Wes Anderson and um, uh, uh, Edgar Wright, it looks like they teamed up to make a movie. It's a comedic timing is there. Everything that Edgar Wright does. It's like a children's version of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. You know, it's... Everything's locked off and calm. The camera movements are controlled. Yeah. But what ends up happening is just that between the editing and the directing, they do such a perfect job of comedic timing and an economy of movement. The The camera never gets herky-jerky, and at no point are you ever not going, all right, what's next? I'm ready for the next scene. It just... It, Boom, boom, boom. Perfect joke after perfect joke. Visual gags are great. Yeah, I don't think there was a single joke joke in here that made me go, ugh. There is a bit where um, one of the main characters discovers Hugh Grant's attic. Yeah. And he's going on this speech about how he's a perfectly normal guy. And he's like, oh, yes, he's a perfectly normal guy. And oh, my God, he is a weirdo. (laughs) And the shift in that gets me every time. Yeah. Uh, there's there's just one great scene after another, and it doesn't hurt. Like, this series, which, like I said, it, like, I was a weirdo in America, I think, for having read the Paddington books, because they were more, much more of a British phenomenon. I can only assume that, like, my parents went to London and came back with them at one point. Uh, we did have British relatives, so I'm sure they yeah. found out that way. But, uh, like, in England, these films are huge. They should be huge here. They're not, because both of them are, as far as I'm concerned, must-watch films. And people? Um it has a train chase. There's yeah. an audience to train chase. There's the movie. plenty of action in this thing as well. It's never boring. And it's the type of series that's going to become the new Harry Potter in the sense that every English actor you've ever heard of is going to appear oh. in one of these eventually. This has got like Julie Waters, Jim Broadbent, Peter Capaldi, uh, Imelda Stanton, Mike, uh, uh, Michael Gambon. 
Allen, Joanna Lumley, Jessica Hines, Noah Taylor, Tom Conti. I mean, it's just this uh, Richard Iode. It's an incredible cast. And a lot of people in here, I'm just not, I look at the name, I'm, I don't recognize it, but when I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, the guy from that British show. <laughs> um, I, I think this is just a top-notch entertainment. And the thing is, what I ended up really loving about it is it's positive in every way. And what I mean by that is every single character in the movie, without giving any details, ends up better off than when they began. Yep. Even the villain has a happy ending. Yep. Of and sorts. Like, I'm just like, oh my God, it's flawless the way they do that. I will watch as many Paddington movies as this creative team wants to make. And I kind of have this inner hope that at some point this writer, director, editor combo makes like a balls to the wall action film <laughs> because I would love to see just this crazy action movie with their sense of timing and space. My thought is that I bet you right now the uh, team at Pixar is like, how much money is it going to cost to get you guys to come work for us exclusively? Yeah. I guarantee you that, that that someone has made that call. But I want them to stay in live action. <laughs> I, I, I want them to keep doing things the way they want to do them. Yeah. You know? Like, I I'm on board for whatever these guys make. Absolutely. This is this is just so good. And there's a audio commentary with the writer-director, Paul King, who talks about like building on from the sequel. And like I said, one of the things is this clearly had they had more money to play with and more studio confidence. So it's just – I mean, it's what a sequel should be. It's bigger. It's crazier. It's more colorful. It's wilder, but still manages to keep it constrained enough that you never felt like like there was no – there were inmates running the asylum. And what's something. really interesting is that I realized watching this that – it it kind of does the 21 or 22 Jump Street thing of, in a sequel, it almost apes a lot of the actions and jokes and gags from the first movie, mm-hmm. but does them in a way that it feels like, you know, yeah, this is a sequel, so we got to have this sequence where Paddington does this, and we got to have this sequence where the villain does this. But it's funny and fresh at the same time. Right. So it almost feels like they're making a joke about making a sequel at the same time. Um, there's a lot of little EPKs about the various aspects of the film. Like, there's a great imaginary sequence in the movie where Paddington is imagining taking his Aunt Lucy through all the scenes and the, that are featured in the pop-up book. And they're sort of walking through the pop-up book. That's amazing. It's oh, like one that of those, like, I cried so hard I couldn't even just die at that right? point. Um, <laughs> and they show how they did that. And there's, this is like... It's just great. It's, just trust it's, me. I know you're like, I don't know, Chris and Aaron. See, I, I very rarely try to lean on the idea of cinema is magic and like talking about the emotions that a film can put in you and the sense of awe you can feel at watching someone's journey. This is one of those few movies that I can honestly say is magical. Agreed. And that's why it's our pick of the week. But that oh, also yeah. means... The digital noise is over, at no. least for now. Uh, the next digital noise will be with Joe. He's currently working on the stack of movies I gave him to watch. Uh, and uh, but thanks once again to Aaron. Thank you so much. You want? Is there any place you want to tell people to find you online or anything like that? Uh, or you want? To I'm on him? Twitter at Father Baldor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although I have like one follower, and I tweet every once in a while. So, hey, feel free to live in me and up. They just and like tweet at me, you know, like <laughs> blow me up. I'm cool with that. <laughs> uh, and uh, also, once again, please subscribers, subscribers, subscribers. 
that's how we're able to do digital noise episodes and the other shows that you enjoy on the site. So please, please think tell your about friends and family about it. Share it with everyone you know. Yeah, go blackmail someone into becoming a subscriber. Oh, yeah. you got some incriminating photos of your uncle? Say, I'll tell you what, I won't give these to the police, but you have to get a $25 a month subscription to one of us. <laughs> You're aiming higher. I was just going to be like, you know what? I'm going to show your wife proof of you cheating unless you give $5 a month to this website. Hey, you know, if you are, you know what? Aim high. Someone, if you're high. go for the if 25 go, If you're going for that, if there's a bank job involved, anything like that, I'd say aim high. <laughs> <laughs>